The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. Welcome those who are watching online as well. Glad that you may be tuning in. Make sure you let us know you're watching. Say hello in the chat maybe where you're coming from, and we'd love to connect with you. Uh, for those who are here, welcome. It is Valentine's Day. Uh, fellas, how you doing? <laughs> there was an audible moan in here. Okay. Uh, hopefully, uh, that was not your first reminder. Uh, if not, good luck. Um, but uh, hey, uh, glad that you're tuning in with us. Yesterday, I spent much of the day constructing a bunk bed for my two sons. And uh, it was a very uh, ambitious project. I told my wife, Amy, I said, it should take an hour, two hours max. It took about five hours, okay? Now, I think I have amnesia with the place that I purchased this bunk bed from. It shall go unnamed. But uh, this pl- particular place, I have been to many times, and I always have like the best feeling going into it, think it'll be no problem. And I'm just convinced, again, this place shall not go named. I'm convinced there is some engineer in Sweden, okay, (laughs) who's brilliant and can devise a way to build furniture that fits in this little teeny tiny box, okay, can fit in the smallest little box. But I'm convinced that that the engineers there are thinking, all right, you know what, on step 23, we're just going to mess with them. Okay, and on step 23, they're going to get there and we're going to find a way to make it so complicated they're going to panic and ruin it and find out eight steps later that they did something wrong and so have to go backwards eight steps in order to complete it. But anyways, that was my experience building the bunk bed. It was not not very uh, joyful. Now, uh, in that experience, I had the thought. I'm just being taken advantage of right now. Like this is, this is some form of abuse. This is horrible. I keep going and going. My kids are getting very, very, very antsy. Okay, they want to get in the bunk bed. And I'm like, it'll be a little bit longer, a little bit longer, a little bit longer. Having to go through this whole routine. Now, uh, in life, we have moments where to varying degrees, we can have that sentiment where we like, you know what? I feel like someone is just trying to pull one on me. Like I'm being taken advantage of. Someone is messing with me, and sometimes it's not so big of a deal. It's in the realm of building bunk beds, and sometimes it's a lot more serious. Other times it's, hey, I have this professor who honestly does not do a great job of communicating. I feel as a student I'm being taken advantage of with the work or with the way it's being graded. Maybe for you it's a home situation where where you're home, you feel like you're being mistreated, like you're not being respected or admired. Some of you, maybe it's an ex-spouse who is... uh, has a lot of animosity and is vindictive and mistreats you. And so to varying degrees in life, in, in this world that we walk through, we're going to experience those moments where we feel like, where's the justice? Where, where is it that it's coming to that person who has harmed us? And justice is a word that is being used and thrown around in all sorts of ways right now. And what we're looking at in, in the book of the, in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, is we're looking at the initial description of how humanity was made. And what's interesting is we've been looking at this idea that human beings are made in the image of God, and it actually teaches us the very foundation of what we mean by justice, of why we feel like when we've been wrong, someone must have something coming to them. 
And this idea of justice, it's established right here in Genesis 1, and it lays the foundation for how we're to understand justice itself. So look with me at Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, and we're going to read through verse 28. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we've been looking at this passage here in Genesis chapter 1. If you've been with us the past couple of weeks, you might think to yourself, wait a minute, didn't we read that last week? And like the week before, and then the week before that, didn't we just keep looking at this same passage? Are we on repeat here? In a sense, yes, we are on repeat. We've been looking at this concept of the fact that humanity is made in the image of God. Because it's one of the things that's so foundational to understanding the, the rest of the Bible. It's at the core of what it means to be human. And it's on the opening page of the Bible. And so you can trace this thread throughout the biblical story. Now, this idea of being made in the image of God is something that we've been talking about the past few weeks with two primary areas of emphasis. They are our dignity as human beings and our calling as human beings. Let me define what we've been talking about. Dignity. We, we've been explaining how the fact that human beings are made in the image of God sets humanity apart from the rest of creation. That means you have more value than a porpoise. It means you have more value than the palm tree in your front yard. It means that you have more value than a star up in the sky. It means that human beings have inherent dignity and worth in the sight of God that is placed there by God. We're made in the image of God. And in a time period when the Bible's written, we're only kings and important people. You know, people who were of status could be even thought of in the sense of being made in the image of God. The Bible describing the origins of all of humanity makes clear, no, every human life, regardless of class, regardless of where you come from, regardless of age, regardless of ethnicity, every human being is made in the image of God and has dignity and value in the sight of God. The second thing we learned as we've been talking about the image of God is the fact that humanity has this unique calling from God. Uh, ancient rulers in the ancient Near East, they'd set up these images or these statues of themselves all throughout the territory where their reign extends. And so for the author of Genesis, for Moses, to convey this idea that we're made in the image of God describes our role in creation. That human beings are to be God's representatives. We're called to be his partners in subduing the earth. Uh, I want you to remember Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, I read it a moment ago. It's after it says, and God, uh, and God created a male and female in the image of God. In verse 28, God is going to give humanity their calling. And notice, God does not say, okay, I'm blessing you. I made you in my image. Now kick back, get some popcorn, put some Netflix on and watch me do a whole bunch of cool stuff. No, he says to humanity, to his human partners, he said, have dominion over the earth, rule over the earth, steward, bring about flourishing, cultivate the land. He entrusts to humanity a certain calling to extend his rule and reign throughout creation. 
It's like this. God is going to work in his world that he created, but God has chosen to work in the world that he's created through human partners, through us. This is the Bible's vision for humanity, for how God made the world, humankind, the vehicles through which God's partner partners in bringing about flourishing and beauty and order and goodness into the world. And so verse 28, it's this mandate God gives them. He blesses them. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, cultivate it, subdue it, exercise rule over the earth as my representatives. Now, you don't have to read very long in the biblical story to see how these two concepts of the image of God, dignity and calling, go wonky. In fact, you just flip over a page to Genesis chapter 3 in your Bible and the image of God, the fact that we have dignity and worth and that we're called to be God's human partners, this starts to go awry. Humanity starts to choose to trust their own way. They want to be their own king, their own God. And so what happens in the world is that humanity gets devalued. So although we're still made in the image of God and humans still have dignity and still have this calling, that dignity is often uh, misunderstood or overlooked. And that calling is ignored. Genesis chapter 4, if you continue reading in your Bible, you're introduced to two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain very famously is jealous of his brother Abel and decides to take his life. Kills Abel as a complete disregard for the fact that his brother is made in the image of God and has dignity and value, Cain takes matters into his own hands and forsakes his calling to be God's partner and instead uses his power not to bring about flourishing in life, but to bring about death. You continue reading in Genesis 4, you read about a guy named Lamech. Lamech boasts in this song in Genesis 4 about how he's vindictive and violent and vengeful. And if you thought Cain was bad, Lamech is way worse. You continue reading and you get to the flood narrative where in Genesis 5 and 6, humanity gets so violent and so oppressive, so so much animosity built between different clans and families that God decides to start fresh and sends this massive flood. You continue reading in the story of the Bible and this original vision of human beings with dignity treating each other like they have dignity and value. And human beings as God's partners in bringing about his purposes and his will in creation, you see that start to go haywire. And so all throughout the scripture, this theme continues to go on. In fact, as you read the rest of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, These first five books, sometimes they're called the Pentateuch. Sometimes they're called the books of the law or the books of Moses. These five books form a literary unit. They're related. Uh, Much of what happens in Genesis informs and speaks into what happens later on in the story. And so when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 24, God is going to give his people a vision for how they are to live as a people. Let me set the stage because I want to read this to you here in a moment from Deuteronomy. As time would go by in the story of Genesis, God decides to take a people for himself, the family of Abraham. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm choosing you to bless the nations. You're going to be this great family. From your family is going to come all these nations. It's going to be great, Abraham, and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. Time goes on. Abraham has a bunch of kids. They go on. They have kids. 
Time goes on, and eventually God's people end up enslaved in Egypt. Uh, this series of circumstances brings them to Egypt, which was the world superpower of the time. There was a famine in the land, and Pharaoh enslaves the descendants of Abraham. So you're reading the Bible, and you're like, how are they going to be a blessing to all the nations when they're captured in Egypt? How is this going to take place? And God miraculously delivers his people out of Egypt. It's the Exodus story and he helps lead them through the wilderness and they're on their way to this land that God promised Abraham hundreds of years earlier. And so God's on his way with his people to bring them into this brand new land where they are to be this nation set apart, different from the nations around them to be a blessing to them. And while they're on their way, God gives them commands. He gives them his law. And what you find all throughout the commands of the Old Testament is many of them have a thread that traces back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. The basic idea that humanity is made in God's image. That human beings are value and that informs the laws that we develop for how we treat one another. Listen to how Deuteronomy chapter 24 takes that thread and continues it to speak to a specific type of situation. Listen to what this says. Verse 17. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or, take a, or to take a widow's garment in a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, you guessed it, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember, he repeats himself, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So God is shaping this nation, preparing them to go and be in this promised land. And he's giving them these commands to set them apart. The nations around them did not operate according to this type of living. And I want you to notice the three groups that are identified here. They're, they're the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And it's almost every time that one of these groups is mentioned in the Torah, the first five books, they're almost always mentioned in unison together. So if you see the fatherless, somewhere the widow and the sojourner will be mentioned as well. And these three groups represented what would have been the most vulnerable populations in their society. Uh, the sojourner would be someone who's essentially an immigrant. Someone who comes to travel within their borders, in their promised land, and goes there from a distant country. Many of us, that's our story, our family story of coming to a new place. And here, the provision is for the way God's people are to treat those who are immigrants. Now, if you continue reading in the Bible, you come across a story, a very short, powerful story about a woman named Ruth. If you want to see one of the ways that this plays itself out, you read Ruth's story. Ruth, this incredible hero of our faith, an incredible woman. She's an immigrant. She's a Moabite woman who comes to sojourn in the land of Bethlehem in Israel. And you see the way this plays out in her story with Boaz. That's the sojourner. The second category is the fatherless. The word there, fatherless, is a broad term 
that can include both the children who have no father. So let's say the mother's a widow or the father passed away or they live alone without the, their father, an orphan. So it includes a, a broad variety of situations, but the fatherless would be individuals, as you can imagine, in a society that was reliant upon fathers to provide for their children, an agrarian society where that was the predominant work to be done. The, the fatherless, imagine a seven-year-old, a five-year-old without a father. And perhaps there's no family support network to step in. And so here there's a special provision for the fatherless. The third category here are widows. Similar to what I was just explaining about the fatherless, widows were of, in a particularly vulnerable place in that society. So God makes special provision in his law to see to it that the most vulnerable among them are not neglected. He builds up their laws and their systems such that the needy among them will be cared for. And in this passage specifically, the command is for them to not take their harvest all the way to the edges. Uh, the command is not to shake the olive tree so that every single olive comes down. The command is to go out and get your harvest of grapes out of the vineyard, but don't go back around a second time to check and see if you left anything behind. Because in every one of those examples, the command here in Deuteronomy is, the reason you shouldn't go back and do that is because those that are left over, that excess that's there, that is for the widow, the sojourner, and the fatherless. That baked into the way God designed for this new family to begin its national uh, beginnings was to see to it that these vulnerable people would be cared for and loved, that their needs would be met. I want you to think through this with me for a moment because this is truly, truly a unique ethic that's being described here compared to the surrounding nations. God is telling landowners who have their farms and their land, he's telling them, I do not want you to maximize your profits for your own gain. I want you to ensure that you go and you, you get your harvest that you worked for, you tilled, you planted the seeds, you made sure it grew, all that kind of stuff. You go ahead and get your harvest, but all of that stuff, in fact, the Hebrew phrase here that's used repeatedly in this passage when it says, it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that Hebrew phrase describes ownership. God is saying something more. He's saying, actually, that's for them. That belongs to the needy and the vulnerable. So he sets this up. And at the very beginning, you notice the word that's used, the first word, one of the first words that's used here in Deuteronomy 24. He says, you shall not pervert the justice due to these three particular vulnerable groups. What's happening here? You know, and the in the way in which God is setting up this nation, what it means to be God's people is that you view all that you have, all of your crops, all of your possessions, everything that's yours, you view it as ultimately belonging to God. It's all God's. And so if it all belongs to God, what does that make me? I'm a steward. I'm a manager. I'm in middle management. He's the CEO. He's the, even more than that, he's the full entrepreneur, owns everything. And I, as the steward, am entrusted with, God, with what God has given me. And as the steward of what belongs to God, God wants to make sure that I am his human partner in meeting the needs of the vulnerable. 
That's the image, that's the picture being used here, described in Deuteronomy 24. And I don't know about you, but when I think of justice, my mind, you know, it says, do not pervert the justice that's due to these people. In my mind, when I think of justice, I think of, you know, being wronged and someone getting what they deserve. I think of maybe someone committing a crime and them getting punished for it. We often think of justice in the sense that justice is something, someone has done something wrong and maybe benefited out of selfish gain or done something shady, committed a crime, stepped on someone to get ahead. And we want for them to be brought down, to be punished, for a consequence to come to that person that matches the, the crime that they committed. And in a sense, the, the Bible certainly speaks to that type of justice. It sets up that justice is a side of justice is that person being, having to pay for the things that they've done. At the same time, the other side of the coin that we often don't think about is the Bible also talks about justice in a Deuteronomy chapter 24 way. Which is that there is justice due those who are low for no reason of themselves. The widow, it's not her fault that her husband died. And she's in a destitute place in that society. The fatherless, it's not the child's fault, that little girl's fault, that little boy's fault. It's not that they can just work harder and do better and then make things meet. No, there are vulnerable people that what it means to do justice, the justice they're due, is that they be lifted up. That their needs be cared for. Because the fatherless and the widow and the sojourner are made in the image of God. They have value. And for one of God's image bearers to go hungry and be destitute and be afraid for their safety breaks the heart of God. And so God calls his human partners, his people, to care for and be his image bearer by giving dignity, by providing life, for those who are vulnerable and needy. That's the vision being carried here in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And maybe you think about this uh, for a moment. Maybe you uh, just envision yourself and you say, you know what? That sounds awesome, but I, don't, I mean, I have some mango trees in my backyard, but I don't have all, you know, these great, I'm not, I don't got a vineyard, okay? What, what does that even mean and look like? Listen, this, this theme underneath, underneath this command is this idea of being made in the image of God. Underneath this specific application of justice means that those who are vulnerable and needy, what it means for them to receive justice is that their needs are met and they're cared for and loved and respected as image bearers. This theme continues on throughout the New Testament. It says in James chapter 1 verse 27 this, the half-brother of Jesus, he writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the heart of Jesus. You read through Jesus' ministry, who did Jesus spend time with? We sometimes gloss over this detail, but the people that Jesus did all these miracles for were the vulnerable. In fact, the reason that we note their stories is because they were in a situation where they needed a miracle. We're talking about the blind beggars, outcasts, lepers who were considered unclean, people who were paralyzed, you name it. They were people who were vulnerable and Jesus was drawn to them. So James writing, describing what it means to be true to the faith of Jesus means that you're someone who cares for the needy. 
these two populations, again, in the Roman Empire as well, that were vulnerable, the widow and the orphan, that they're cared for, that they're loved. And all throughout the passage in Deuteronomy 24, two times the author, Moses, he reminds the people, God reminds the people, Moses documenting it, the impetus behind this law, the impetus behind why they are to care for the sojourner and the widow and the fatherless is because he wants them to remember, hey, remember, you were once slaves in Egypt and I redeemed you. You were once vulnerable and I'm the kind of God who defends the vulnerable. And so I'm making you now into a nation. And so when you come across someone who's vulnerable, I want you to be my partner in showing dignity and providing value and bringing life to those people. Now, all throughout the centuries, Christians have been on the front lines of caring for the weak and the needy and the vulnerable. The expansion of early Christianity in the Roman Empire in large part took place among the fringes of society, among the poor and needy. In fact, Roman officials started taking note with how Christians, churches who had no power, were caring for the needy and poor in such a way that they were astonished by it. So they had to come up with their own versions of nonprofit organizations, government programs to try and help the needy to keep up with the way Christians were loving their neighbors. All throughout history, we see Christians being on the front lines of caring for those who are sick, caring for those who are experiencing illness. It's embedded at the very core of what it means to be a Jesus follower. Human beings are made in the image of God. And so, of course... How could we not care for and defend and uplift those who are vulnerable? You know, uh, we could spend time talking about each of these three categories, about the fatherless, about the widow, about the sojourner. But for today, we're just going to talk about and focus in on just one of those three. Because there is a crisis right here in our own city that we can actually do something about. There is a crisis, there is a vulnerable population where we can actually, linking arms with other churches in our city, in Jesus' name, make a difference. I'm talking about the fatherless. God has a special care for the orphan, for the fatherless. And when we hear the word orphan, maybe what comes to mind is a commercial with someone singing in the arms of an angel of some distant country and a child. And there are certainly orphans around the world. And we should care for them and we should pray for them and we should be generous toward them. No doubt. But right here in our city, there are orphans as well. We just call them something different. I want to paint a picture for you. Uh, between October 2019 and September 2020. So just to give us some context, that's right before the pandemic, October 2019, and then right through when quarantine set in through September 2020. In that calendar year, or in that year, 1,163 children were removed from their homes and put into the foster care system right here in Miami and Broward County. 1,163 children. That means that you could fill our auditorium without social distancing three times over. And that's how many children were taken into foster care. And actually that number is not as high as other years or other years could have been. And, and 
You might think, oh, that's good. Less children went into foster care. That's great. But the reason that less kids went into the foster care system is because something happened in March, April, where children, they weren't leaving their homes. And the majority of kids who are reported that there's some sort of abuse or suspicion of neglect taking place, the majority of those cases, it's a coach or a teacher or someone in the community, a daycare worker who reports it. And so what happens when all these children are staying at home and forced to be home and the world is changing and everything's hard? It's not that less kids were needed to be put in foster care. It's just that no one saw it. Right here in our city, in Miami-Dade County, Broward County alone, 1,100 children taken that calendar year. And the way that the foster care system works when someone reports suspicion of abuse or neglect, what that, hap- what that starts is an investigation. And it's the goal of the investigator to try and find any way possible for the family to stay united. It is plan Z for the child to be removed from their home. But if the worker, the investigator comes in and sees an environment where mom is living single, well, the dad's not in the picture, and in many instances, the statistics come to bear that the most likely situation is that there's some form of substance abuse and addiction. And the parent that this child is living with is strung out on drugs all the time and is incapable of caring for the child. And so in that situation, they try and exhaust any possible means of not separating the family. But when a child gets taken and placed into the system, that means that their situation is that bad. What they are experiencing on a day-to-day basis is that traumatic. That it's better for them to be removed from their parent or parents. They're taken into the custody of the state and they're placed either in a group home where they will bunk up with dozen other children or however many children fit in that house or they'll be placed in the care of a foster family. Now this system is fraught with complication. It's messy. It's inefficient. There are challenges with it like there are with anything else. But for a moment can you just stop and think with me about the child who has done nothing wrong but has grown up in an environment where all they've known is trauma. All they've known is crying for extended hours, but no one coming to soothe or to give food. Imagine with me that that world, and these are the children right here in our backyard. And so that we can have a grasp for how this touches so many other areas in our society that are broken and fractured. Think about this. These are some recent statistics. Listen to this about homelessness. Nationally, about 50% of the homeless population spent some time in foster care. 50% of the homeless population spent time in foster care. Child sex trafficking, 60%, 60% of all child sex trafficking victims have histories in the child welfare system. That means that those who profit off of trafficking children and exploiting children, that they see the fatherless as an easy target. And so preying upon them, they take them and put them into child sex trafficking, substance abuse. Listen to this, former foster youth experience seven times the rate of drug dependence and two times the rate of alcohol dependence as non-foster youth. 
Criminal justice. 90% of youth with five or more foster placements will enter the criminal justice system at some point in their life. Homelessness, sex trafficking, substance abuse, criminal justice, all in some ways related to this huge, massive problem of our modern day version of an orphan. And I share all that just to ask you to imagine with me what could happen in a city? What could happen in a community if the Christians, if the people who are called by Jesus' name and saying Jesus at the center and saying Jesus be the center of our church, could you imagine what could happen if we actually lived that out? What could happen in a city if Jesus' people said not on our watch? That as for those kids who have only known neglect and abuse and abandonment, imagine a city where there are thousands of Christians scattered throughout Broward and Dade County. Imagine if Christians said, I'll open my home. I'll take a child and I'll show love to a child who needs love. I'll be a safe place for them. Imagine the statistics, how half the homeless population and all those who are seven times more likely to abuse substances and two times more likely to become an alcoholic. Imagine the difference we could make. And it all starts with one child. And so we as a church, we have this burden this vision to see our city transformed, we say it all the time, to see South Florida transformed by the gospel in our generation. You know what's a slice of that? A piece of that? It's Jesus' people being released in the city, bringing children who have experienced trauma into their homes and other families rallying around them supporting them, providing meals for them, doing some babysitting for them so those foster parents can get a break, can get a date night. It's those, those of us who can and are able financially helping partners like four kids of South Florida that our church has partnered with and given financially towards for years that are doing great work to connect kids who have been taken into foster care into Christian homes. This is exactly what we should be doing. And James chapter 1 verse 27 is exactly what we should expect to be written in a Bible that starts with page 1, humans are made in the image of God. This is our calling. And now I'm not trying to be overly optimistic. I'm not trying to make it sound easier than it is. The families in our church that have opened up their home and have Foster children that they have for seasons, some of them for a few months, some of them for years, some of them have adopted their foster children, and they'll tell you it's hard, it's painful. I mean, to open yourself up to a child in that way who has experienced trauma, here's, here's what you need to know. Here's what's the reality for these children. Children that have been abandoned or neglected, children that have been abused, that trauma means that they act out. That trauma means all they've known is pain and so they'll act out and inflict pain. And what these foster parents are doing is saying, I'll absorb some of that pain for this child. 
so that they might have a safe environment, a safe home where they're loved, even if they yell at me and scream at me, even if they're doing well and making improvement regardless of what they do. If they make all this progress in my home or if things get harder and harder, I will show them the kind of love that Jesus patiently showed me. Is there anything more Jesus-like than to go to someone and say, I'll take some of your pain on myself. I'll sacrifice. I will recenter my life so that for as long as you're in my house, you know you matter, you know you'll be cared for, you know you're loved, and you know there's a God who loves you and has a purpose for your life. Church, we have an opportunity in a couple of really powerful ways to be involved in this battle. The first that I want to just lay before us is there are some of us watching online, some of us who are here, that God may be calling and tapping on the shoulder and saying, hey, that's you. I'm preparing you to do this. Don't hate me for bringing it up. It's the Holy Spirit. There are some of you that God might be tapping on the shoulder and say, hey, get ready. This is coming. And it might sound scary and overwhelming and there's all the excuses, but I can't because of this, the house, this, this crazy season right now, pandemic, all this kind of stuff. And the Lord is saying, no, get ready, get ready. There are some of us, we're praying as a church that over the next few years, we'd see 25 foster families in our church opened up. There's already uh, uh, dozens and dozens of people who are already ready and equipped to step in through something we call family advocacy ministry, to step in and support help with tutoring, help with childcare, help with bringing meals over once a week. There's a number of people who are ready to rally behind, but we're praying that God would be raising up foster families from our church. On top of that, our partner, Four Kids of South Florida, has shared with us that there is an urgent need right now for 15 foster families in Broward County. 15 foster families to say, I, I, I'll open up my home. And they're praying this weekend, and we're praying that we would, as a church, make a dent in that. And so here's what I want to share with you. If that's something that you are ready and interested in taking a step, doesn't mean there's someone coming to your home tomorrow. It means you're taking a step, is I want you to do this. I want you to take out your phone right now. Take out your phone right now, and I want you to text FOSTER to 474747. FOSTER to 474747. Here's what that'll do. Our partners at Four Kids of South Florida, they're great. Their office is in Fort Lauderdale. They're going to reach out to you with a link for a Zoom call. Set you up, and there's an online orientation that answers a whole lot of questions, gives you an overview of the process, and they'll connect you. They'll help you be able to answer the question, all right, is this something we need to really seriously be praying for and praying about? So maybe your step is to text that number, foster to 474747, and begin praying now. It was a few years ago that Amy and I, we went and did an orientation uh, and we heard about foster care and we learned and we asked questions and our hearts were moved, but we were in a place where we, we just couldn't get licensed. We didn't have the right home set up. We had some obstacles in the way and so we waited. And then a few, about a year later, the Lord individually put it on each of our hearts, somewhat independently after we hadn't talked about it for a while and we just sensed now is the time. And so we went through in 2020 the licensing process and have our home licensed as a foster home. 
And right now our home is open for respite care, which means that we get to help come alongside other families who are actively fostering and be able to provide them with a weekend or a week of reprieve, of respite, so that they can go on a vacation or have a week where they're just able to recharge and get ready to go back in to love that child, to care for that child. I share that because there's so many ways, there's so many ways for us to be engaged with this really, really incredible opportunity before us. To be engaged with showing dignity to the most vulnerable among us, our children. So the first way is to consider becoming a foster parent. The second way I wanna highlight for you is something called Care Portal, which is brand new to us as a church and we are so excited about. Here's the idea of Care Portal. It's a way for uh, professionals, those who are investigators and caseworkers, who come to a home, and again, remember, removing a child is plan Z. And so if someone gets a report, they do an investigation, they find out, hey, look, there's this family, there's a single mom who's living in a house, and there's no furniture. The kids are sleeping on the floor, mom is sleeping on the floor, it's rough. Caseworker would put something, upload it to Care Portal, and that would immediately start notifying people in the community of that need. And what Care Portal is enabling us to do is to begin helping families before they enter into the system. In fact, uh, there's this great video I want to show you right now. It helps explain the way it works a little bit further. Check this out. In every community, there are children and families in crisis who need help. But for many, isolation and lack of community resources prevents them from getting the help they really need. And in every community, there are churches and people who care, who want to take action. But what they need is a connection point and support. Care Portal allows child welfare professionals to share real needs in real time through technology. The Care Portal network is already helping children all across the world. So Care Portal is a tool that's just now rolling out in our small groups and they're starting to take place. In fact, some of our groups are already on Care Portal. And just this past week, recently in fact, there was a notification that popped up on Care Portal of a single mom who uh, couldn't pay her rent that month. And notification pops up on Care Portal and one of our City Rev small groups saw that and said, okay, we could take care of that. And the small group rallied together, contributed to make sure that that mom could pay for her rent. There are so many ways that we can be involved and engaged in serving our city. And so not only are they able to meet that need, but now they're able to develop a relationship with that mom and her children and be in prayer for them. Tell them that the reason we do what we do is because God loves us and God loves them and we wanna be a tangible expression of God's love to them. It's an amazing opportunity before us and our small groups are starting to roll this out. My group next week is gonna start meeting, my men's group, we're gonna meet and we're gonna start getting ourselves acquainted with Care Portal. We're excited to be doing that. And so here's what I would say, if that excites you, if you're like, hey, that, that sounds incredible. Because think about it, it's helping prevent the child from being removed from their home. If you're interested in something like that, the best way to be engaged with that, take out your phone. It's through our small groups on our CityRev app. You go ahead and grab your phone right now. Open up the CityRev app. If you're watching online, take these notes so you can do so afterwards if you're watching on your phone. But go ahead and write this down so that you can go ahead and sign up for a group if you're not already part of one. If you go on the CityRev app and you click on the ministries tab at the bottom, 
You can scroll down to groups, to small groups, click on groups. Then you can go ahead and click the little button that says join a group. Joining a group will bring you to a page that lists all of our small groups. We have women's small groups and men's small groups. We have co-ed small groups. We have uh, singles and married small groups. We have all sorts of different types of groups. There's one for you. Some meet on Zoom. Some meet in person. Some are a hybrid. Meet some in person. Some on Zoom. But all of our groups is a great way to begin, not just connecting with others, studying the Bible together, having people praying for you and with you with what's going on in your life. But on top of that, they become kind of like this little battalion that goes out into the city and together linked arms form this presence of Jesus, this reflection of the good news of Jesus in our city, bringing healing, bringing restoration where there's brokenness. So I encourage you, go ahead, you can click on that button, email a group leader, they'll get back with you this week and we'd love to get you connected so that you can be engaged with caring for the fatherless with us and with other churches in our city. You know, we say often around here that our vision as a church is to see South Florida transformed by the power of the gospel in our generation. Our vision is for our city, for our city to be turned upside down. It's not just for what happens in these four walls to be wonderful. We want what happens in these four walls to be amazing. We want what happens in your living room when you worship with us or watch with us online. We want that to be wonderful. But it's so that we might be the salt of the earth sprinkled throughout, as Jesus said, as a preservative, as a source of life, as the light of the world. It's our calling to take that tangible message of Jesus, the gospel, and live it out. You know, for the people of God in the time of Genesis and in Deuteronomy, as the Torah is being composed, their framework that God gave them was, I want you to remember, you were once slaves in Egypt. You were once slaves in Egypt. You were once vulnerable and I redeemed you. I fought for you. I lifted you up from your place of vulnerability. You know, in the New Testament, we have a, a new and even better framework. It's not, for you were once slaves in Egypt, the New Testament framework is, no, you were once slaves to sin and death, and Jesus came and redeemed you from your sin and adopted you into the family of God so that he now calls you brother or sister. Hebrews says he's not ashamed to call us brother. He's not ashamed to call us family because through his life and death and resurrection, Jesus has made a way for broken people like us, for sinners imperfect people, to be reconciled to God, adopted into his family. And as those who have been set free from that type of vulnerability, from the most desperate need, our eternal need for forgiveness from God, Jesus set us free from that, met that need in love and in grace, and now calls us to go and do likewise. See, the fatherless right here in our city, there's justice that they're due. And God's plan for the justice they're due is you. And it's me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you right now just in some ways overwhelmed it's hard for us to even fathom or imagine what that's like. Or for maybe some of us in this room, that's our story. Or we've experienced our own form of abuse, neglect. 
And God, you met us in our pain. Ultimately, Jesus, you forgave us from our sin. And so if we've been shown that kind of love, how could we not help us to not just be a church that sings, Jesus be the center, but may we be a church that lives out, Jesus is the center. In fact, with everybody's heads bowed and eyes closed, right there where you are, if you in this moment are ready to put your faith in Jesus, if you've never received his forgiveness and trusted in him for salvation, then right there where you are, you can make this prayer to God. In fact, repeat these words to God from your heart as a confession to your father that you need him. Just repeat these words, say, Father, today I put my trust in you. Jesus, I believe that you lived for me, that you died on the cross for my sins, that you rose up from death. And I confess, Jesus, you are Lord. You run my life. You're in charge, not me. Forgive me, Father. Cleanse me. Make me new. Help me to follow you with my life. Jesus, we love you. I pray you would find us a church faithful, that we would be obedient, and that we would see your, your church right here in South Florida, not just City Rev, but the churches of South Florida, rise up like a mighty army to show your love to vulnerable children, to vulnerable people that we would say collectively, not on our watch. Would you raise us up, call us out, those families that you're tapping on? I pray there'd be healthy conversations this afternoon. What a thought on Valentine's Day where we're talking about love, that we would be people who know what it means to love and pour ourselves out for the world around us. Father, we love you. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if that was a decision you made today to put your trust in Jesus as your savior, I wanna invite you to go to cityrev.org slash faith right now. There's a quick form you can fill out. We wanna put a Bible in your hands. And so if you go to cityrev.org slash faith, we'll, we'll send you a Bible, get you connected. Would love to celebrate that with you. And then if you're interested in getting baptized, so if you just put your faith in Jesus or you recently put your faith in Jesus but have never been baptized, we have a class that's happening soon for you on Zoom. And so you can go to cityrev.org slash events right now on your phone or screen. Go there right now and we'd love to connect with you and get you set up so that you can learn all the things you need to learn about baptism and celebrate that with us this coming weekend. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.